1: Rossi Boots, the transformation of a century old legacy. Rossi Boots has had first hand experience dealing with the unprecedented retail disruption of the last two decades. Their realization more than a century designing, manufacturing, and delivering high quality footwear is not enough to guarantee sustainability. We had the opportunity to sit down with Melinda Rossiter, great-great-granddaughter of the company's founder, to discuss Rossi Boots' transformation, its newfound flexibility, and the advantage of being able to draw on more than 100 years of excellence in bootmaking. Enjoy this episode with Melinda. We were really delighted to find out about your story. And um, so Rossi Boots, we know very little about boots, very looking forward to learning more about boots and, and the craftsmanship behind them. So we'd love for you to just tell us first the story of where your great-grandfather started this business and how you guys managed to become such a huge, huge name uh, in Australia and, and internationally as well. Sure. Arthur Edward started
0: his boot business in the backyard shed in 1908. He started making boots there. And then in 1910, he built Unley Road, which is where the business started and formed Rossiter's Proprietary Limited. Um, It was pretty hard. He moved into that block that he bought with his four kids. and his wife. Um, So he risked everything for this business. And it was pretty hard for the five years after that until probably 1915 when World War One started and he started supplying the army with boots. So he got a lot of support from the government. And um, that's probably a reason why this business took off, which is Uh, interesting now because we get no support (laughs) so it's it's come full circle but we'll touch on that later but anyway so from 1915 onwards it was a pretty strong business Mm. Um, we supplied uh, the army with boots and then of course World War II in 1940 where it was something like 110,000 army boots that we supplied over a number of years. But in the war years, the number of employees for the business peaked at over 500 people. So that that's wow. a very large business for Australia. So obviously he grew incrementally um, on the back of, of army boots, but he also an average sportsman. He played at high-level football mm-hmm. and he played at high-level cricket so he had informed a lot of associations through both of those sports and we also made football boots for a number of South Australian National Football League clubs and that also helped buoy the business up as well once the war wars were over. So... Yeah, in, in 1988, if we move forward, just so you understand, he moved into Unley with his family, risked everything and and supplied boots to, to the army in 1988. It was the first move he did from Unley factory mm-hmm. to where we were at Hilton only about a month ago because we just moved okay. again. Wow. <laughs> 1988, he um, he moved from Unley to uh, Hilton, which was a, a larger property mm-hmm. near the airport here in Adelaide. The business has, you know, spent most of its life in Unley, um, and we've done those last two moves only in, you know, the last sort of twenty odd years. So it's it's pretty phenomenal. I remember as a kid going to Unley Road; they had a shop front um which they didn't have at the end of, of the tenure there but we used to go in there and choose shoes and boots and then the factory was was out the back and we'd run through the factory. It was is pretty cool.
1: What were the operations like when you were growing up then when demand obviously was not peaking because of war times, etc. Like what was what was the size of the operation? What was the what was the outlook for the for the family business at that time?
0: It was pretty buoyant, you know. There, there was um, not many imported goods at that time. There was no one else importing, and you know, we basically made boots for demand. Um, the interesting thing about the business is back then the factory ran the business. If you know what I mean. Yeah. The the processing of the boots. There was never any sales focus in this business whatsoever. Mm-hmm pretty much survived on what we could manufacture
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we sold everything we manufactured. So the outlook of the business was always good. Were we rich when we grew up? No, no, weren't. We weren't poor but we certainly weren't rich. Mm-hmm. It probably should have been a lot further along than it was but the family was, was really happy with what it was doing the shareholders were earning a certain amount every year and, and that was just sort of cream on the top of, of whatever they were earning. So, you know, the outlook was, was really good. No, no one was worried about paying salary or paying anything or, or everything was up to date. No one owed anything. It, it was pretty good.
1: Was it the kind of business that you as kids were keen to join? Was it that kind of? Not really. No.
0: My dad my dad said to us, because we all went to university, we were all lucky enough to, to go to university, although we funded ourselves, but we were all three of us. He's got three kids. I've got an older sister and a younger brother, and all three of us did go to university. Not that they talked us into it. That was our decision individually, but he always he always said to us, you know, kids, if it doesn't work out with whatever you decide to do, you can always come to Rossy Boots. Not that you want to, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but if, if you have to. <laughs> you <can>. Oh, right. <laughs> that, that's
0: what it was always like because
1: oh. this,
0: that, that generation was basically forced into going into the family business. There was no decision for my dad there was no decision for my dad's cousin, Dean, who ran the business for 50 years. Mm. You know, it, it it was just the way it was and it was a great life for them but they didn't know anything else. They didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And so I think when he looked at us and we all went to university and we all studied different things and he just sort of was always saying, look, you know, if things don't work out, you've always got this but don't,
1: don't you don't really want to do that. <laughs> So it's either a case of really honest concern, or the best, the best reverse psychology method I've ever heard of. Okay, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Melinda. I'm not sure. You might have fallen into a very, very smart trap. Okay, I'm not sure.
0: Well that means all three of us intelligent children fell into the same trap. See, I what? suspect
1: your I suspect I suspect your parents of, of like, you know, a very clever, clever twist to the succession problem. I love it. So funny because all three of us now are
0: involved in some way. So it's very interesting. But look, I don't have, you know, all I have as memories as a kid of this business is fun and we used to have picnics every year called Rossi picnics where all the families got together at this huge oval somewhere and we had Santa Claus come we had running races and you know it was a, a really lovely family company to be you know associated with and all my uncles you know they they loved to see us and and it was you know it was a really fun it was a fun place. It was never, although my dad, you know, got up every morning, same time, you know, for all those years. I cannot remember him having a sick day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was did he love his job? I think he loved the people. He was a rep like I am, and he was very much like me. So we need people to sort of be around, and, and we could we can't work at computers for very long. We go a bit haywire, so. He was very much like that as well. So I think he loved his customers. Was he passionate about the business side of it? No, my dad wasn't. Mm. He he would have been quite happy repping for anyone. So it was sort of different for him. Where the, whereas my um, uncle was very passionate about the business. Um, he he led the business for many years.
1: So, but but you you did eventually join, and so did your 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 sister and your brother and. So, you know, experiencing the business as a child, as you said, like, you know, quite a uh, fond memories, et cetera, that you associate with it. How did you find the business once you joined? Like, what was that like? How did you, did you, uh, were you surprised by certain things at the on the inside? Did you guys immediately agree on what needed to happen next? Like, was there a, a joint vision that you were able to create?
0: Um, yes, there, there was
1: um, a joint vision. It was very difficult
0: to to transfer, so my, um, my dad's cousin, so my dad left the business and so did my uncle who was involved in uh, product design and he was the one that was out on the road and he was very in touch with his customers. So a lot of the really good designs came from Colin, that's mm. my, my um, uncle. So they had left and Dean, who, who's run the business for 50 years, he couldn't let go and it was a very, very difficult process. Mm -hmm. Um, He got quite sick and um, it it was very, very difficult to lead him out of the business and get a new CEO in. Mm -hmm. And the, the segment that we're in has changed so dramatically in the last 20 years that the capability of this business to guide itself through what we've had to do in the last four to five years the capability wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't there. that they they had the heyday years, the years when you know really, you know, could you have stuffed up? I, 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 I don't know. I honestly don't, I don't know if if you could have come out with a design that wouldn't have worked, you know, because you already had the designs that were working. So yeah. what we found was what we inherited was a whole heap. Of different styles a third of which were working really well and the rest were rubbish nice. so we've had to do everything to this business you know we've had to manage people out we've had to retrench we've had to um, people have left with we've, we've changed everything in this business in the last four years it's mm. it's been hard work and um, sometimes really tedious and difficult and you know now my husband works in the business as well they poached him (laughs) (laughs) along the way my you know my sister my brother started out he was on the board anyway but then he became chair chairman of the board
1: that's a very um tough thing to go through I think right like in the sense that how do you emotionally keep the family intact but at the same time face business realities so how how did you um Amongst siblings, were you guys aligned at least? Did you have that advantage? Or We were aligned. Um, it, this
0: story, though, isn't uncommon in family businesses, as yeah. you would know, especially as they change from generation to generation with a, a family business group here in South Australia, and it's a very common phenomenon, I suppose, where you're mm-hmm. going from the third to the fourth generation, especially where the fourth generation has to work really hard
1: Mm.
0: to pull the business up to where it needs to be in the environment that has been created. It's almost like the third generation just leaves it where it is for many, many years and Mm. doesn't listen to what's going on out there. A lot of the staff at Rossi's have been there for many years. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been outside eyes, what I call you know, outside eyes on the business for over 20 years Mm. and it's so important to have third-party views on lots of different things within the business. Mm. But I think if you speak to anybody coming in as a fourth generation, the story in family businesses is pretty much the same.
1: Well, and it's it's already quite... um quite the achievement to get to the fourth generation, right? Like I think, and that that is a fourth generation wanting to take over, wanting to face the difficulties that you guys have faced is not necessarily that frequent, right? Like, so, um, and you'd have families like rather transferring to like selling the business and doing something else with the money or like, you know, starting, right. uh, starting from scratch in, in, in another way, probably an, an easier thing to do at some, at some point. But you guys have managed to turn things around, though. Just to come back to a certain point, though, that you mentioned, Melinda, which is you touched upon the fact how much this business has changed over the last 20 years. And that sort of that put the business probably also into the position that you founded it in a few years ago, um, whereby it was no longer able to just uh, thrive on the basis of an established name, of a household name and of a business as usual, but had to reinvent itself, had to innovate. Can you tell us a little bit more about what particularly changed so much in your industry over the last 20 years and how it interrelates, obviously, with the industrial revolution that we're facing?
0: Yeah, I think
1: unquestionably for us, it's been the introduction of
0: major imports into business and the price pressure that that puts on everybody. I think it's it's also the state of the economy, you know, going in and out of, I guess, what we call real financial issues in the economy and so, you know, you've not only got... Price pressure, you've got people that don't have a lot of money to spend. And I think that was the changing element that wasn't addressed by the third generation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It should have been, Blundstone addressed it really well 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) So if that puts you in perspective, we were actually ahead of them over here in Australia. Their family addressed this. They took their Tasmanian business and put it overseas but they did it quite slowly, quite methodically, tricked the industry into thinking they were still manufacturing a certain amount in Tasmania for years. Mm. They did it really well and now they're a $200 million company.
1: Mm.
0: It's a phenomenal story. Theirs is a phenomenal story. Ours isn't.
1: It will, it will be again, I am certain. Let's stay very optimistic. Unless you're doing the reverse psychology thing that your parents have taught you. I so, wish I was. <laughs> but, um, but they're like, it's such an interesting uh, phenomenon that you're describing. And as you said, Melinda, by no means uncommon within family businesses, of no. course, actually very frequent, just as a, maybe as also like a signaling to the outside here, to people listening listening to this or reading this, what do you think are the reasons family sort of like shut their eyes towards the plain fact that they're about to lose their competitive advantage? Because that's essentially what you've just described, right? Is that by virtue of not moving along and like by virtue of not reinventing oneself, you lose that edge, that market market share that you've so uh, painstakingly acquired. Like what do you think makes families so blind to when that happens? I think they know
0: that it's happening. I just. I think it's a combination of fear. Mm -hmm. I think it's also a combination of not having the tools and the experience and the knowledge to navigate their way through. And that that goes hand in hand with fear, Mm -hmm. I think. They did try. They did attempt on a number of occasions to import, to, to try to use a formula to assist. So they they saw the problem. It wasn't that they didn't see it. It's just that I don't think, my opinion, is they didn't have the skills and the know-how to be able to
1: do it. And and that was a culture. And culture is indeed also what now you guys have changed very drastically because it's felt from the outside that today you are a very forward-looking and very inclusive culture. It's felt from the branding and everything Mm. that's there and the the messaging is very, very strong. That's what attracted us in the first place to interviewing Mm. you even. So that's an incredible job done then in such a short time. The interesting thing for us now in this time of e-commerce and like, you know, actually technically people having access to your products from everywhere in the world, so not just locally, um, is Mm. that interestingly, the competitive advantage of being a fourth generation brand is coming back, is sort of resurfacing, right? right? Like So a lot of people yeah. indulge in a lot of nostalgia in their buying experience, actually emphasise it, like, you know, durability, sustainability is coming back yeah. as a trend in the consumer's preferences. So so how are you guys at Rossi Boots intending to take advantage of that upswing towards the values that you've been incorporating for, you know, for generations?
0: Yeah, I, I think for us it's... it's um, stabilizing the business at this point and establishing what we're really good at which is work boots mm-hmm. but also dabbling in other areas but everything we make whether it's made in Australia which a percentage of our product is or whether or not we bring it from overseas and import it it's all got the same formula it's it's all mm-hmm. double stitched it's all back darted it's all the leather is always you know a certain depth and it's always from a particular place in the world it's a formula that we've used for 100 plus years and Mm. it doesn't matter where it comes from but we very aligned with regional Australia and those products that we supply and have supplied and the reason we're still here is because of regional Australia and we won't give them anything other than Australian made. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. The rest of the consumers don't really care. They're very price sensitive. The farmers here Mm -hmm. want Australian made and they want Rossi and that's what they want. You know, as a board and as a company, that's what we will honour, but the rest of the portfolio we can play with. And a big advantage that we've got is exactly what you said, you know, vintage styles of ours that have lasted for 15, 20 years that people will pay top dollar for will be available from us online. You know, we're revisiting a few of those styles and creating different versions of them. We'll be very strategic about where they're available and and the price that they'll be, whether they're Australian made, whether they're not. It depends on what segment we're selling to. But it's it's a it's it's difficult it's difficult to work out but for us as long as we can supply that chain you know which is the reason we're here regional Australia with Australian made everyone's happy.
1: It's incredibly an incredibly great position to be in right now I guess for the next few years especially as you guys now are set up more competitively with the new structure and the new culture but um, so you're saying like regionally made um, sorry Australian made regionally focused. Um, family owned does it matter does it matter to Australia's market does it matter internationally are you guys intending to leverage on that a lot yeah
0: yeah it definitely matters um, in Australia I'd say it would be Australian owned or family Australian family owned would rank higher than Australian made now mm-hmm. depending on which sector you're in it's probably aligned in the regional areas but in the cities where you're getting a higher rate of sale, I'd say that, you know, supporting an Australian family-owned business mm. ranks higher than actually buying Australian made because they won't pay for it. In many countries around the world, Australian made and Australian owned is a very powerful tool and having 100 years under your belt, especially in the US and Canada, is, um, is a phenomenon And you only have to look at Bluntstone's success and understand what sort of power Mm. that can
1: have. It's a a wonderful thing, 100 years, as you said, a competitive advantage, no doubt. And um, the question now, of course, Melinda, that I have to ask you in the end is whether you intend to equally and passively coerce the next generation into joining the business. Or if this (laughs) is... (laughs) Are you going to be outright recruiting them or is this going to be another one of those situations where you will be sending subliminal messages into their subconscious? Tell us, Melinda, admit it now. Uh, I
0: think it depends on your kids, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Um, I think if I told my daughter she had to go into the family business, she'd, she'd do the exact opposite. So, you know, I think I'll probably take a leaf out of my dad's book. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's such a good question, isn't it? I don't know if I'd eventually, you know, after all the work that we've done and what we'll eventually create, which will be a beast, you know, whether or not you'd be disappointed if if your kids didn't. I don't think I would be. I think it depends on what they want to do. But, yeah, you'd be careful about who you ended up passing it
1: over to it's like your kid isn't it well it is unfortunately the attachment grows and grows and it gets only worse with years it's true um it's like we can talk in another in another episode melinda about whether that's a healthy thing or not i have my own view on it but uh, <laughs> but but we look forward to many many more years of rossi boots and we're Yay. definitely delighted to have you guys all the way from the other side of the world uh, participating in this interview. We're super delighted. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.